0: You're listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour.
1: First, the news. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured number forty-six. So uh, the big news this week on the fast food movement front was, well, it's not very often that we get to report on anything positive coming out of McDonald's, but apparently McDonald's agreed to a settlement um, that was sort of a a milestone in the fast food workers movement that has been mobilizing workers across the country for the past few months. Uh, They agreed to pay half a million dollars in total to about 1,600 workers who charged that. Seven McDonald's franchises had basically raw workers of wages through various means. Um, According to State Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, they had denied them uh, overtime under New York state law after they had worked extended 10-hour shifts. They had failed to provide their owed allowance for the time and costs associated with cleaning their own uniforms. And according to the report by the Huffington Post, they had regularly performed off-the-clock work before and after their shifts at the Manhattan restaurants owned by one Richard Cisneros. The fast food workers' movement is uh, quick to note, however, that this is just one of a number of pending lawsuits that are ongoing. And beyond the litigation, according to some surveys Uh, approximately 8 in 10 fast food workers (laughs) in the city have been victims of wage theft of some sort. So this is basically the tip of the iceberg. So hopefully this is just the beginning of a much wider movement for some kind of economic justice. And it's not just the wages that were directly thieved from them, but actually, you know, the just wages that they're truly owed for the work that they're doing every day. Weird.
0: From that to uh, a tip sent to us by the labored listener, Jonathan Levitt. Bus drivers in Vermont are on strike this week. Um, The drivers of the Chittenden County Transportation Authority, who are organized with Teamsters Local 597, have been supported by the Vermont Workers Center, students from the high school and the University of Vermont, um, many other union workers. As we record this, those bus drivers are still out on strike. Um, They are striking for a fair contract that treats drivers with respect, avoids increasing driver fatigue, and creates livable jobs. Because you know, one would hope that uh, bus drivers who are responsible for many, many lives are able to get decent rest before coming to work. One supporter, a president of the faculty union at the University of Vermont, said that they sound like workplace issues from 1914, not 2014. It's amazing how little these workplace issues change. So we're seeing, I don't know, I I still want to know if we're actually seeing more strikes. The Labor Department doesn't count strike statistics in any useful way when we're talking about strikes of a smaller number of workers in smaller workplaces, but it's always encouraging to hear more. So if you
1: have a strike near you, let us know. So there's a new report out by the Retail Action Project, along with Women Employed and the Progressive Think Tank Center for Law and Social Policy, and it talks about Something that we don't often hear much about when we're talking about poverty and inequality, it's the issue of unjust scheduling, namely sort of the tyranny of the on-call schedule. I talked about this in a recent blog post at The Nation. Essentially, the problem is uh, it's not just that they're not earning enough to make a living wage, but it's that their hours are so erratic and so irregular that it makes it basically impossible to have any kind of sustainable livelihood or really you know get anything else other than work done in their lives a lot of the workers whose stories are detailed in the report are effectively working maybe 20 hours maybe less than that they're not working a full-time job and they're on a schedule that is so erratic that they sometimes don't even know until you know basically the day before or the day of how many hours they'll be working if you can imagine what it's like in New York City for instance to be on call for a retail job get called in for your job, which is a two-hour commute away, show up for work, and then only end up working three hours, get sent home by the boss, and then have to commute all the way back. Basically, work does not pay. And that's one often overlooked aspect of of retail labor and also contingent labor in general. And it really speaks to this whole issue of creeping precarity throughout the workforce, especially for workers who are trying to cobble together living out of multiple part-time jobs and trying to raise kids and trying to go to school and trying to save up for a house. It basically makes it impossible to live in this city as if it weren't so impossible already. So I compare this in the report to uh, something like the shape-up that dock workers had to line up for a century ago in New York City. This is basically this essentially the same labor structure where at the boss's whim, you can be hired or sent home. And if you don't get work that day, then that you're just... You know, one day closure to eviction. And that's the reality that a lot of people are living under in the city. And because they don't have unions, because there aren't strong protections for on call scheduled workers, they have no economic security and no real power over their working conditions or subsequently the rest of their lives. So uh, there's more on that report and my piece at the Nation. And there will be more of that coming out with the Just Hours campaign. And we will be reporting on that in the future. I was struck this week
0: by an article that I saw um, from Inside Higher Ed about a proposal by faculty and students at St. Mary's College in Maryland to link the pay of the president of the university to that of its lowest paid employees. So the pr- the proposal would limit the president's salary to no more than 10 times the salary of the lowest paid full-time staffer. Um, that would be, the article says, about $300,000, which is 26000 less than the current interim president makes. And the article warns, ominously, could affect the college's ongoing search for a new president. It's worth pointing out, of course, that the college president compared to its lowest paid staffers is nothing compared to um, CEOs at, some of the companies we've already talked about today, like, I don't know, McDonald's um, or clothing retailer Gap, which the article points out uh, the CEO makes 331 times more than its average workers. But I think this is an interesting proposal, and we will touch on this idea a little bit later in the podcast in some ways, but... um, (sighs) The idea that not only do we have to bring up the bottom, but like at some point we're going to have to put a limit on the salaries at the top. So bravo, faculty and students of the labor movement at St. Mary's College, hope to hear more of this. All right.
1: Sounds like sounds like redistribution, but a <gasps> dangerous idea. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent
0: magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org.
1: And in this edition of Belabored, we bring you a very special discussion with Adolf Reed. He is a political science professor at the University of Pennsylvania, and you may have seen his name around lately, floating around in the left blogosphere, because he's been getting a lot of buzz for an article that he wrote sharply criticizing the American left in Harper's. And he has since been sort of making the rounds, trying to parse some of those ideas that he put forward, and uh, kind of inviting some interesting controversy over some of his ideas about why the American left is in decline. So we got him on Skype to talk to us about where he sees the left in America going. And this is a preview of a book that he is working on now, soon to be out on Verso, about the decline and transformation of the left since World War II.
0: In preparing for this interview, I read a lot of the responses to your Harper's piece, and I have to say that many of them seem to be running different than what I read. Um, This certainly seems to have become an opportunity for liberals to refight lots of ongoing battles, but I read your piece as an argument that a real left has to build a real base for itself among working people rather than place its faith in presidents or the Democratic Party to do the right thing. Um, Would you say that's correct, and why do you think so many people are missing that core point?
2: uh yes i think uh you read what i wrote uh, and i think others are missing the point partly because because uh, they want to miss it actually you know, one of the things that struck me about um what seemed to be talking points around which some of the responses converge i mean the responses from what i would characterize as uh, as um your democratic apologists um you know one i think is very interesting which is a, a kind of a new one to me it's that uh, this tendency to say, well, what he says about the Democrats and and their um, accommodation to neoliberalism may have been correct at some point in the past. But as of a couple of weeks ago, it's no longer true. And Reed is so far behind the times and so far out of touch that he doesn't understand that that's all changed now, uh, which I thought is an interesting kind of rhetorical move. I mean, uh, you know, Meyerson makes it. Um, I think Walsh makes it. Um, Conxile might, might make it. It got to the point where I stopped Reading those things, because um, the uh, the substance of that argument or non-argument, uh, I think, is revealing. I think it concedes the accuracy of the critique, but tries to sidestep it by saying that's no longer true. Um, so that's kind of what I expected. I mean, I wasn't really writing the thing thing for people like that anyway. And the other thing that struck me about it is that that I've um, a reference I've come across several times is. Uh, That I'm settling scores, and I don't quite understand what scores it is I'm settling unless it's considered in poor taste to point out that people who had argued that Obama was the hottest thing since sliced bread in 2008 uh, and were um, pretty rough and brutal with those of us who were left skeptics about Obama then. Did so. I, I suppose we're just supposed to let bygones be bygones, but that's not, you know, I wasn't really writing to settle scores. Anyway, I was just trying to point out that that this logic happens over and over again. Now, now I was talking to someone I know yesterday who was at a meeting where the article was passed around and he'd read the article already. Uh, and one person at the meeting uh, who hadn't read it, uh, but a few minutes after the meeting began with the passing around of the article, made the point that the upcoming election is the most important one you know in the history of the world and and the person i was talking to just said he couldn't he couldn't restrain himself he broke out laughing at that point because this is you know because that's something i point to in the first two or three paragraphs of of the article but i think ultimately i think the reason that people don't want to or don't read the article in in that way is reflective of the extent to which um democratic neoliberalism has basically won uh you know the struggle for um common sense understanding of the boundaries of progressive politics so that anything that's uh any suggestion that there's um that that there could be much less should be a domain of left aspiration that extends beyond You know, the center of gravity of the Democratic Party is just unthinkable for a lot of people.
1: Right. So, speaking of lowered expectations, um, you seem to focus on the Clinton era as a turning point in liberalism or in the American left, um, talking about sort of when it departed from some of those earlier sort of central leftist agendas that had driven liberals in the 1960s and 70s and kind of shifted into full neoliberal mode. And I was wondering, to what extent do you feel that this is a particular product of the Clinton era or even Clinton's particular style of politics? Or do you feel like Clinton came along and kind of catalyzed um, a historical turn on the left that was a product of various kind of social and economic circumstances at that time?
2: Oh, that's a very good question. Uh, I think both things are true up to a point. I mean, I've I've uh, often said that um, that um, you know, Reaganism uh, began in the last two years of the Carter administration, uh, which a lot of people tend uh, you know, tend to forget. And uh, I know this will flip people out too, but I've um, but but I'll take the occasion to point out that just as I'm proud never to have voted for Joe Lieberman for anything, I'm also proud never to have voted for Jimmy Carter for anything. But I guess an insight that's been coming out of the work that I've been doing uh, recently my writing in the early 60s period, late 50s and early 60s and debates over um, what full employment was supposed to mean and how we were to understand poverty and uh, economic inequality that you can already see in the Kennedy administration signs of uh, a movement away from what we sometimes too schematically um, describe as the traditional democratic coalition, because everything about tradition depends on when you start the meter of history writing. But definitely after Mondale's defeat in 1984, you know, the tensions within the party um, surfaced and became more acute. Uh, the Democratic Leadership Council, which was formed in 1985 in the wake of Mondale's defeat, self-consciously, you know, the self-conscious agenda to, to push the party to the right was um, you know a shot across the bow basically, and um, you know by the way both Bill Clinton and Al Gore were past presidents of the DLC, so there's that. Um, and there were you know this tendency some some listeners might might recall went by a number of of names in the 80s uh, um, Atari Democrats and was one, and um, you know long long forgotten figures like Bruce Babbitt and Gary Hart, um, along with and Sam Nunn, along with Clinton and and uh, Gore and others, uh, you know, took up this argument that um, for the Democratic Party to succeed, it had to accept uh, that a secular movement to the right among the American electorate, and had to redefine the nature of its electoral coalition. So Clinton, in that sense, was the standard bearer for a more or less self-consciously rightward tacking or pushing element among Democratic Party elites. Uh, And I would say, as is often the case, or commonly the case, that it was the Clinton administration that actually consolidated Reaganism, uh, because his administration was hinged on the premise that, that, that the Democrats' path to electoral success had to run through accepting that the center of gravity of, of, of the effective American electorate had tacked to the right, uh, the, and the Democrats had to embrace uh, the, the primacy of the, of the financial sector, attacks on uh, federal provision of of social protection, uh, a muscular foreign policy, etc., um, you know, trade agreements. Uh, the Clinton administration's argument that. Um, that we had to accept that as the boundary of acceptable or or responsible or reasonable um, liberal or left liberal uh, political aspiration. It's kind of what sealed sealed the coffin of the left in the US or finally sealed the coffin. Well, now, that's what I mean when I suggest that the Clinton administration actually consolidated New uh, Reaganism. And, and what's funny about that too is that you know, well, I'll accept that Clinton was a master politician, whatever that means exactly. He never really won an electoral the uh, majority, and in each case, it's probably the, the the savviest thing that he did was make sure that uh, you know, that uh, Ross Perot paid his filing fee.
1: It's
0: interesting you you talk about um, savviness there because um, I also read the piece as sort of very critical of. This sort of beltway insider, very serious people type who think that anything vaguely utopian marks somebody as simply unserious. And you are also critical of a left that is constantly looking to these outside sparks for inspiration. These problems both seem related to me, that it's a problem of middle class liberals who are basically very disconnected from the, the actual economic hurt that a lot of people are really feeling and have been feeling especially the last five years, but for the last 30 years. Do you think that this is a consequence of a liberalism that's mostly disconnected from sort of labor and, and dare I say, the working class?
2: Oh, yeah, I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And um, I also do think that they are kind of two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, there's, there, there may even be a tendency to oscillate, right, uh, or to vacillate, right? I mean, between the one and the other, uh, I mean, depending on a mood. Um, and in both cases, actually, Part of what connects each um, perspective is a sense that that it's possible to find technical solutions to what are fundamentally political problems. And to get beyond or away from the messiness of actual politics and uh, movement building. And when you look at at it that way, uh, that further reinforces, I think, your assessment of the class character of both these tendencies, because it it's a fantasy or um, a wish uh, that's been uh, at the core of, uh, of a strain of middle-class uh, new reform-oriented politics since the late 19th century, actually.
0: In the interview you did with Thomas Frank over at Salon, um, you talked about specifically the reaction to the UAW's loss at the Chattanooga Volkswagen plant as an example of this kind of um, spark and, and small crisis that people obsess over endlessly. And I mean, that one in particular got under my skin a bit. Um, if I could declare a moratorium on articles about what one thing is going to save the labor movement, I would. Um, but I think that's. i onto it, by the way. Yeah, you know. Um, do you think that labor too has been over infected with electoral, uh, electoralitis, which I love that term, and this search for like a, one spark that will save us?
2: Well, uh, in a word, yeah. I mean, um, and I mean, I mean, it's understandable. I mean, I think labor is affected as much as every other um, element of uh, progressive American politics has been, even more so uh, than uh, most, because um, you know the intensified attack on the post-war collective bargaining system that that many people have been inclined to think of as a compact. Uh, caught everyone by surprise and of course the other side was was in command uh, of uh, you know, defining the the agenda um, you know the obama administration is the third consecutive uh, you know, democratic presidency that has promised to do something in the way of uh, you know, labor law reform that would tilt uh, you know the playing field back back toward uh, your working people and the third consecutive one to, to fail to follow through on it. So, in a case like that, when there's so much at stake for actual people, right, like members, which I think is something else that a lot of people on the left tend to forget about the labor movement, right, the, you know, not just the official duty of fair re- representation, but also, you know, a moral and, and ethical obligation to do the best for, for one's members, um, understandably, trade unions and the labor movement, uh, you know, writ large, will have to make short-term calculations uh, about what's least likely to hurt members come come election day every two years or four years or what seems to be the case now more, more and more frequently every year. Um, but at the same time, I think it's safe for us to say there's a need for the, for the trade union movement institutionally to put a little bit of effort into developing its own alternative um, you know, political voice, because I think we've kind of fallen into a situation in, in which it certainly seems like the national leadership of the AFL-CIO, at least, or the 16th Street crowd or whatever, um, it's not clear the extent to which they are uh, emissaries of uh, from, from the labor movement to the Democratic Party, or um, emissaries from the Democratic Party to the labor movement, uh, who, who's whose task is to explain to us you know, why we can't really expect anything more more than what the Democrats are willing to offer. So yeah, I think both things are true.
1: In your Harper's piece, you note in epidemic of what you call sort of dilettantism afflicting the left. Um, you basically say that activists uh, devolved into a politics of gesture and kind of tepid solidarity with whatever flavor of the week oppressed group is you know, hot at the moment. And on the one hand, I kind of read through your list of those various oppressed groups and said, gee, those are issues and causes that I've identified with over the years. And then on the other hand, I, looking back, you can definitely see where you're coming from when you uh, critique the fact that the left has become this sort of um, flabby, directionless blob with no core political analysis in recent years. Um, but I guess my question to you would be, what would you suggest replacing this of dilettantism, with
2: mm-hmm. well, yeah, that's a very good question too. And I mean, just for the record, uh, I mean, let me make uh, you know, make clear because a number of people have been uh, attacking me for this too. I, I, I support those same initiatives, right? Uh, what I find frustrating, or at least a lot of them, but what I find frustrating is this sense. Um, you know, you, know uh, you mentioned before the idea that in supporting these um, justifiable and proper attempts at uh, reform from the bottom up, as it were, like with um, living wage ordinances and wage theft campaigns and and fast, fast food organizing. Um, I think that tends often to be uh, a kind of slippage uh, from seeing these as. As important things to do to make people's lives better, right, to establish something or maintain something of a floor. Right, uh, um, the beneath which people m- more or less won't be able to fall under an intensifying uh, ne- neoliberal version of of the enclosure movement. But where the problem of the uh, of the idea of the spark comes into play is the presumption that just because there's that that movement on these fronts will by itself somehow Uh, turn turn into the big challenge right to 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 capitalism there I said the word Uh, or to capitalist power or to corporate power or or uh, you know whatever and it doesn't necessarily follow and in fact more recently actually I've been thinking about this as um, you know from within the purview of the Democratic Party and and I'll say that this insight if it is one was sparked Partly by the extent to which um, you know, Democratic apologists, uh, in their attacks on on my argument, have pointed to things like the um, you know like um, you know, living wage ordinances in the fast food campaign, But from the standpoint of of the Democratic um, politics as a totality and 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 I mean in and around the party, so you've got if if the left is involved in um, um, trying to patch up or you know, maintain um, you know, a floor at the bottom for those workers who are worst off, and the element of the party that's in power is involved in a bipartisan alliance uh, aimed at pushing down the ceiling. Right, you can see how this could wind up right with what uh, you know, at some point with what's in effect um, you know, one party with with uh, you know, with two wings, uh, the one of which guards the floor to make sure it doesn 't fall too low, and the other of which f- focuses on pressing the ceiling down as close to the floor as they possibly can and meanwhile we 'll have intense di- disagreements about uh, multiculturalism and and uh and, uh, and uh, evolution um, as the bread and circuses aspect of of the politics now that 's a pretty thought isn 't it?
1: <laughs> right right um don't remind us but um and well going back to that issue of um you know how to build power from the ground up when you have these other forces kind of militating against any sort of real uh, mass mobilization um uh, what do you think of uh, you know that that brief sort of flicker of uh anti-capitalist unity with occupy i mean would you did, did you feel at, at any point that that perhaps had the potential to be the sort of a uh, spark that the left might be looking for, or is it perhaps Please? right? <laughs> see, see what you did there, Michelle. Right. Um, <laughs> or or did it just uh, you know devolve in the in the ways that uh, that you were noting earlier, like well, so many I, other initiatives.
2: Right. Well, I mean that's an interesting question, and 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 I can feel myself kind of skating out on thin ice here. But well, I guess the first thing I'll say is that I don't believe in the spark, right? Uh, but I think um i think the idea of a spark is the problem um and frankly i kind of saw occupy as like the in uh you know some ways the frustrated twin of young people's um, attraction to obama in in 08 right um and each of them suffered i think from the same problems right uh too too much emotion right um uh, you're more focus on righteous bearing witness uh and uh, you know not enough on organization and and objectives uh, and 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 also um i mean you gotta remember right that adbusters is kind of what or claims at least to have lain
1: right depending on which occupy origin creation myth you believe but <laughs>
2: Right. Exactly. That's exactly right. So, I mean, and I just don't think ultimately that that's the way that politics gets gets made. Right. Uh, I mean, I think if we want to see, you know, I mean, look for, um, you know, like the lineal ancestry of Occupy, I think uh, um, you know, the anti-WTO movement that condensed around, um, you know, the Seattle meetings is probably, um, you know, a reasonable uh it's reasonable, you know, to see that as an ancestor and we've got to ask, you know, what happened to that, right? And it's the same kind of thing, right? I mean, there's a tendency and see, I think that this is also, um, uh, you know, not obviously perhaps, but, but I think it's also, uh, an expression of that problem of the link, you know, well, of, of the wish that, that, that some gimmick or some magic intervention or a ship just beyond the horizon carrying a, a, a wonderful cargo can can catalyze, you know, the popular uprising, basically. And, you know, I just don't think that's the way that politics works. I'm certainly sympathetic to the desire to see something that will turn things around or at least get the ball rolling in our direction a little bit, you know, give some kind of a uh, uh, a momentum to a left but um you know i appreciate the urgency lord knows right i mean i you know i go to work through west philly every day so um but the fact of the matter is and it's a tough pill as well you know we didn't get into this position overnight we're not going to get out of it overnight and i think the only way that we can is through trying to broaden the base among you know you know i mean not just among uh, you know the poorest and the worst off, right? I mean, not just um, among um, you know the marginalized populations and uh, and uh, new constituencies, but but to connect with the broad mass of American working people as as a, as the a working people. I mean, even those who who um, don't work, you know what I mean, and who who are expected to work at least, right? Um, because uh, among other things, I mean that's. Uh, like we're not going to be able to propagandize a serious left political movement through uh, the mass media right uh, um, you know I don't care who who gets uh, you know our slot on MSNBC even if you know uh, um, you know the reddest person you can imagine would uh, because the medium isn't conducive to us right uh, um, it's corporate owned or it's corporate controlled, right? Uh, th- there is no way that you know, left agendas are going to get um, you know, you know, a fair and adequate hearing. And it's also very, what I mean, you can't really push counter hegemonic understandings of, of uh, the way the world works through uh, you know, that kind of medium and its uh, structures of, uh, of, you know, of uh, the communication and, and de facto censorship. It's also true. That we can't do it through the left press or or uh, through the left media because most people don't don't read it right. The only way to build a movement is to try to connect with people who live places and are in families and neighborhoods and bowling leagues and churches and what, whatever the heck else people are in, um, wine sipping clubs or whatever, and uh, to organize that way right. I mean to kind of. And I think around issues, right, uh, uh, that, that you know, connect to people's lives, actually. So, and, you know, that's not to say, you know, I'm not a complete um, uh, a Luddite, much less a troglodyte about this stuff. I think it's possible to use the new communications technologies, including even the social media, to do stuff. But really, you know, um, nothing is going to take the place uh, for building a counter-hegemonic politics of you know nothing's going to take the place of of direct personal contact in in your networks in which individual activists have standing of of some sort or another so in that sense uh i could appreciate a lot of the uh, emotion and um the passion you know with which people approached occupy but i mean like look i tell you i mean i had meetings with a couple of friends and colleagues um, two, two weeks in a row, actually, lunch meetings in uh, December of 2011, 10, uh, you know, whenever that was, who, who said, well, but the one thing you can say about Occupy is that it's got people talking about uh, t- talking about inequality. And I said, well, but then who's talking about inequality Who that wasn't talking about it before? I know you were, I was, everybody you know was, I assume everybody I know was. And in each case, the response was the New York Times. And I said, well, yeah, but, you know, before they talked about inequality, they they talked about Kim Kardashian's wedding and her pending divorce. Right. And and and, I mean, it's not so much that the word inequality gets printed in The New York Times. Uh, You know, that doesn't do do much for us. It doesn't translate into anything unless you think that, you know, it's something that might make it a little easier to sleep at night. I don't know. I mean, I remember. Tony Mizaki, the founder of, of uh, the Labour Party and, and a long-time OCAW uh, officer, p- prior to then used to mention that uh, the actor, uh, Lionel Stander, who, who was in the Communist Party, uh, was quite happy that in the elevator scene in some film he was in, he was wh- whistling the Internationale and it stayed in the movie and nobody caught it. Well, that's great. I mean, that's a good laugh. Uh, you know, it, uh, it makes me feel kind of good in a way. But it doesn't translate into anything. And I think that that... That the occasion that I report on of those two discussions with colleagues who are both very good, very smart, uh, you know, left left inclined people, kind of speaks back to your comment earlier uh, about uh, um, um, about a sort of class shading, right, on on perspectives about what's what's possible and what means stuff, and for that matter, how change is made.
1: Yeah. and also how people seek validation through you know, these media hegemonies that are oh <laughs> supposed to be God. the things that we're mobilizing against,
2: right? Right, absolutely. Right, absolutely.
0: So you mentioned this a little bit earlier on, and I want to go back to it. Um, a while back, I heard you on Doug Henwood's radio show, and talking about the difference between when people are very concerned about poverty and being concerned about inequality. And I, in that interview, you sort of articulated something that I've been sort of feeling and having a very hard time explaining. Um, And something you mentioned just a a few seconds ago about sort of the alliance that both parties have with the very rich. I mean, this seems all connected. Can you sort of explain why it matters to discuss inequality and not just poverty?
2: Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I'll try. Um, I mean, (laughs) um, um, I'm sort of cloudy about it in my head, too, in some ways. I mean, well, I mean, let me... But well, I may have done this on uh, Doug's show, too. But um, what really got me thinking about this was, again, this work I've been doing uh, on, the, on, on the 50s and 60s. And, uh, and I was curious about how or when or how, actually, um, liberal concern with, with economic inequality um, you know, became concern with poverty and uh, racial discrimination and, uh, and uh, later racism because they all came together. Um, around the same moment, yeah. historically, and I think that the that, uh, ultimately the problem with 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 poverty as a way of of well there are two problems with uh, the poverty idea as a way of uh, you're making sense of economic in, injustice in, in in our society anyway. Um, and uh, and ultimately what, what it comes down to is that poverty is a condition. Right, it's construed as a condition. It has been since the early Kennedy administration. I mean, ironically, um, you know, Eisenhower—it's uh, the Eisenhower administration that that, that um, you drew attention post-war to poverty and uh, persistently high rates of unemployment. Uh, and um, and uh, the Eisenhower administration's discussion of poverty made no reference to culture or behavior, uh, you know, anything like that. But two Critical intellectual interventions or ideological interventions in uh, the late 1950s one is is invention of human capital ideology which is a way of turning individuals into firms and taking them out of uh, out of the dynamic flow of the political economy and God forbid and and identity as workers who don't stand uh, on an equal one-to-one basis with employers And Oscar Lewis's um, invention of the notion of of a culture of poverty both kind of came together um, to give us or to to give elites a way of talking about inequality that's completely abstracted from the regular functions of the capitalist uh, political economy, which after all produces and and, uh, reproduces inequality at its core. and um, even more perversely, and it shifts the focus of um, re- of a re- remedying uh, you know, economic in- injustice or un- un- undesirable economic um, inequality, I suppose, on- onto the target of fixing the limitations of the people who are suffering from the poverty and the long-term unemployment themselves. So it rests on a ultimately, on a conviction that there's nothing wrong w- with the way that the economy produces um, economic di- differentiation and of you know, stratification, and that if things are functioning as they ought to be, and and I mean, certainly this was the dominant ideology throughout the post-war period that if things are functioning as they ought to be, then the rising tide will lift all all the boats except for those few boats that are so messed up uh, and you know, uh, I mean themselves, that the boats need to be uh, you know, repaired, and, and you know that's what I think is is a problem with poverty and inequality, or or with poverty um, as a way of you know, describing inequality.
1: Mm-hmm. So on the other end of the economic spectrum, uh, you have called out mainstream Democrats um, for over the years pandering to moneyed interest groups, and um, and see that as one reason why the left and mainstream liberalism has kind of embraced neoliberalism and an agenda of economic deregulation um you know pro so-called free trade etc and and Clinton and Obama both being prime examples of this Mm -hmm. Um, What do you think of the role of money in politics today? Um, Do you feel like it has been highlighted sufficiently as a corrupting influence in the political system or do you feel like people perhaps make too much of it when in reality um, it is sort of the lack of a clear kind of um, political uh, base that is you know, moving things in another direction? What what do you think is the role of say things like campaign finance but also just the general corporate influence in politics?
2: yeah, I guess I'd say a couple things about that. Uh, well, I guess I'll start with saying, saying that um, I guess the indictment of the Democratic elites for their commitment to, to or the prior commitment to uh, the to the interest of the financial sector, first, second, third, fourth and fifth. Isn't so much a call for the Democrats to do anything because that's kind of like you know every now and then for perverse reasons I would watch the this program on the Animal Planet called Fatal Attractions about people who imagine that they had these pers- sad people really who imagine that they had these personal connections to these very dangerous animals um, and so you do things like keep Komodo dragons in your apartment and then the predictable happens uh and from that perspective i see you know the democratic party is you know being like a rattlesnake and you can't blame the rattlesnake for biting you you just or or and certainly not if you bring it into your house and you sleep with it so that said it's a bit overblown i know but my point is that the democratic party has never really been the crucial vehicle for working people's interests right for for pursuit of working people's interest there was a period uh, when it was open enough and accessible enough to us and that was a period when both the labor movement and what's been called the social movements of the 60s had social had social uh the momentum and traction that um basically um buttressed our place within the Democratic coalition. Um, I often also point out that that our interests uh, got more from uh, Richard Nixon than we have from either Bill Clinton or uh, Barack Obama. And it's certainly not because Nixon felt closer to the left. I know that both, well, I know Clinton did. I think, you know, I mean, one of the things that people have missed about Obama is that he never was on the left. He never even pretended to be on the left. And when Uh, He's gotten criticism from the left. He's been waspish enough just to come right out and say, "I've never been on the left. I never told you I was on the left." But so I think that's so I think that's the difference. And I think that what's happened now, well, um, and and I think this is a good occasion to make this point also, that there's you know, I mean, as you guys know, there are uh, that that there's a cottage industry. It's maybe even bigger than a cottage industry now uh, among academics and you know, left intellectuals uh, 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 inside the academy and out, of parsing, uh, that's all about parsing um, the finer points of of neoliberalism, and it's largely a taxonomic exercise as to what counts as neoliberal and what doesn't. Uh, At this point, I think I'd say very simply that when I talk about neoliberalism, really what I'm talking about is capitalism that has eliminated effective working class opposition. Uh, and I think that that's kind of a helpful way to think about it, uh, particularly like in light of the question, um, you know, because we've we've also fallen into a tendency to treat that, you know, those first three decades after World War Two as as a kind of new nature uh, from which the last three decades have been a, 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 repre- a more or less rep- reprehensible Deviation. Also, so much of our propaganda um, stresses how 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 much worse things have gotten, which is an important thing to do, but also at least implicitly calls for um, a restoration of this earlier peaceable kingdom. But it never was a peaceable kingdom, right? Uh, those 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 first three decades after World War II were the direct product of strong. Of a strong working class movements and strong so- social movements that that lapped over um, you know into uh, you know the world of de- democratic party elites and like the history of capitalism prior to 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 the Wagner act uh and post nineteen eighty it tells a quite quite different story uh, uh, um, uh, i mean even among my or among my friends who are also academics you know, we but you know've been coming to this view that the notion of higher ed and 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 uh, and uh, you know, what a university is and who has access to it that we all grew up with as nature was also just a blip right um, right, right before you know the GI Bill, college was the province of rich people uh, and that's where where we may be going with it again to the extent that it that it exists at all so I know I've gone really far far afield about this, but that's all part of the context in in which I'd address the issue of money in politics. I mean, yes, uh, you know, the money's always been there. But here's what I think the problem with focusing on stuff like campaign finance reform is that unless you can build a mass movement from below to challenge it, there's no way it's going to be challenged. Right, because the people, who, because the only people who have the power to change the current system are the elites whose incumbency has is embedded in it. Right, so you get some action around the edges and stuff, but absent a mass movement, um, you know, um, I think it's howling at the moon. Right, uh, I mean, it's probably useful to keep pointing out. What about right, the role of money in politics? But, but I mean beyond that, I don't think there's much that can be done because the other piece of it is, and this this speaks back to your observations earlier about uh, you know the class character of of left liberal thinking at this point, is that um, it's an issue that's too technicistic to be able to build the kind of mass movement around that you need to build. Um, so I think at the end of this long narrative <laughs> that uh that the best way to tackle the problem of money in politics is to try to build a popular w- working class movement um um around other issues that will enable us to intervene effective yeah, much more effectively in in uh, in uh the electoral domain
0: so switching directions a little bit um I saw some of the, again, some of the critics of your article um, complain that you were dismissing feminism and other movements that um, people like to dismissively call identity politics. Right. But to me, it read like a critique that Michelle and I have made, that many other people have made, that um, this kind of neoliberal Sheryl Sandberg worshipping, you know, put some more women in the boardroom and we'll be great, feminism, is not terribly useful in terms of changing society. Um, I'd love to hear you speak more to this question of of feminism, of other um, sort of identity-based movements and and why it's really important for those movements to still have a a grasp on the idea of, say, class inequality.
2: Right. Well, yeah, thanks. I mean, and uh, and, uh, once again, I think you read the article that I wrote, right? Um, yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I agree with you, obviously, uh, I mean, completely, and yeah, I've been thinking in a way, you know, in the 80s um, and uh, you know, 90s, I got uh, um, a lot of heat for having been drawn into debates about the existence of a so-called urban underclass, right? Uh, and um, and what, what I noticed was that in arguing against that really reprehensible um, the understanding of poor people that's made up of just kind of just just so stories um, that show all kinds of nasty class and gender prejudice and, uh, and uh, racial prejudices. Well, what I was struck by was that um, critics would say uh, what, you know, would accuse me of uh, making light of teenage pregnancy. Uh, now, my friend Arlene Geronimus, who's a demographer at the University of Michigan, did really great work on. The teen childbearing issue in the early '90s, as as did Kristen Luker, you might have seen some of hers, and found that well, um, turns out that having a baby as as a teenager has very little impact on um, you know the economic and the public health characteristics of either mother or child, uh, and the reasons are complex. We don't need to go into all that. But, well, they're not that complex, but you know more detailed than I than, than I suspect we need to go into. She got more hate mail than anybody in history of the University of Michigan. And I was on a um, I was at a couple of talks that she gave, and I saw this happen, where scholars in the field um, accused her of being um, of, of making light of teen childbearing, and she would say over and over, No, I'm not making light of teen childbearing. There are lots of reasons that it's better for people, you know, for women. You know, not to have babies as teenagers. All I'm saying is that falling into poverty isn't one of them. Okay? And what I learned from watching the way the critics in the poverty research industry and others uh, you know, responded to her and to me for making some of the same points is that being able to make um, a first cousin of a red-baiting charge Right. Well, this is the way I noticed that some other people have used the fact that I voted for Ralph Nader in uh, in 2000, Um, you know, to use the equivalent of of the red baiting charts to sidestep and deflect, um, you know, the argument. So I think that's one of the reasons that people have been inclined to read me, because I don't think I've ever written anything anywhere that would suggest um, making light of feminism or of the objectives of of the women's movement. In fact, the only criticism that I've made have had to do with the ways in which what's generally understood among democratic um, liberals to be the scope of the women's movement has been shriveled to expunge all of uh, all of the class concerns, right? Like um, comparable worth, uh, the fight for universal child and elder care, et cetera. And, and, you know, that in a way is my charitable reading of the misreading. Um, I think the less charitable one speaks more to my continuing um, new revulsion um, at um, having grown up with uh, the Baltimore Catechism in Catholic school uh, and the ways that people with commitments tend to read like an archdiocesan censor. And if the name of the Lord isn't um, uttered, um, often enough and with appropriate praise, uh, you know, to damn the blasphemer. And and I think that may be some of the reading, too, right, that people are just accustomed to reading a uh, discussion of what we would call the identity movements with, um, with um, a superficial patter of, uh, you know, pro forma um, pieties, basically. Yeah, so anyway, I mean, so um, Obama um, – um, you know, also, did, um, appropriated through evocation, you know, the imagery of the worker struggle, um, with uh, his appropriation of the "Yes, We Can" slogan. But in both cases, the appropriation was totally disconnected from the, the historical specificity of the struggles and and and, um, and um, you know, the oppression and exploitation that the struggles were were against, and. Uh, were um, patched into, basically, or were uh, or, uh, you know, melded into um, Obama's persona as embodiment of, of uh, and person as a literal em- embodiment of the hopes and aspirations for all good things about America and and uh, you know, for all people. So, in a funny way, the gestures that Obama and the campaign and the people who created brand, uh, you know, brand Obama made to um the history of black american struggle and uh, latino struggle you know, in the case of the farm workers work to just the opposite effect right i mean work to um to to incorporate them as props into this um you know claim uh, or this projection of um of a neoliberal individual uh, you know the hybrid as i've call it in the article, the hybrid of uh, Martin Luther King and Neo from the matrix basically.
0: Yeah. I mean, this conversation just reminded me of, um, so I lived in Philadelphia when the first Obama election was going on and I volunteered for a little while in a oh, North. you were down here then. Yeah, I was, uh, I was in grad school at temple. Oh, okay. Um, and I volunteered for a little bit at an office in uh, Northeast Philly. Mm-hmm. And what was always fascinating to me was we would get very nice, during the Pennsylvania primaries, we would get very nice sort of white people from Maryland who would come in who were very enthusiastic about voting for Obama mm-hmm. and were terrified to go door knock in black neighborhoods. <laughs> And that's something I think about a lot when I think about this idea of sort of post-racial America and the people who are invested in this idea of post-racial America.
2: Right. Well, no, I mean, that's good. That's I mean, a good point. I mean, and I'll say this. Uh, uh, in fact, I'm glad you mentioned the, post, uh, the post-racial the thing again because I'm trying to forget it. But, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, well, no, no, no. Well, no, it's important because I need to address it, I think. Uh, that. Uh, uh, you know, th- thinking back to 08, right, I mean, I was struck with um, how much of – black commentary in particular or more broadly anti-racist commentary in in general seemed at loggerheads inside the brains of of the commentators in the sense that the impulse to uh, get happy about um, Obama's election as the first black president uh, was powerful, right? But at the same time, just as powerful almost was the anxiety not to um, go too far, right, Uh, and accept, um, you know, a claim that not many people worth talking to were actually making or, uh, I mean, would actually make, Uh, you know, that that, that is the claim that Obama's election means, you know, there's no more race problem in America. Uh, And it was just kind of interesting to me to watch uh, you know, to read commentaries, right, uh, that came out around the election, even uh, before and, 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 uh, you know, after, that, that seemed almost like um, a cognitively dissonant attempt to put these two, two ideas together, right? I mean, uh, you know, the ideas being the desire to give oneself in to the celebration, uh, but the imperative of, you know, not to get too happy, right? And I think a part of the problem is that the, that the whole post post racial thing is just stupid, right? I mean, uh, just as its antagonistic arguments are, right? I mean, and in a funny kind of way, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, the notion that there's like a post racialist argument out there is one that appeals to anti racists, um, to a lot of anti racists, partly because it's the argument that you feel more comfortable challenging and refuting right i mean it's kind of like you know so much of uh african-american historiography now hinges on proving yet again and again and again and again that the stanley elkins thesis that slaves didn't have any agency and were and were brutalized sambos is wrong and in fact it's not a view that anybody in the history profession um has taken seriously for more than half a century um and in that sense i guess what i'm saying is is that some battles are appealing to fight because they've been won so safely that you always know what what the outcome is going to be
1: right like this supposed milestone basically just validates everyone's uh ability to retreat back into their comfort zones and continue arguing the same things
2: over, right, and over. exactly no i think that's exactly right and uh you know like the second third fourth fifth time that you've seen some stuff like this happen like in your lifetime i mean i think we've run out of you know whatever i think think we've run out of black or female firsts we seem to find another one because i mean i remember it in the mid-1970s a guy named clarence leitner was elected mayor of raleigh north carolina and uh the hype around him was that he he's mortician actually now i think about it but the hype around him was that he was the first black person elected mayor of the city of a southern city between Chapel Hill, North Carolina, and and Atlanta, so you know.
1: Yeah, there's a first for everything.
0: So we've talked about a lot of things here, and you know, I to wrap up, I I still have to say that I agree with most of the arguments you put forward in that piece, and yet I still do sort of feel like we're in a moment with a lot of possibility. Um, I don't like to use the term hope because I, I feel like you're going to tell me that hope is also not as useful as organizing. But are there things that are making you, you know, I, I have to feel like you made you made this critique at this moment for a reason. Mm-hmm. Um, are there things that you are feeling positive about right now?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, it may be a little strong to say positive, but I would say possibility. Yeah. I mean, um just in a formal way right in a formal sense it just seems to me that it's getting harder to keep defending um you know the status quo right and that's a lesson that i take from the one line that i mentioned at the beginning of, of our our conversation um you know the one line that, that that the democratic apologists all seem to be converging around that is the contention that what i argued about the Democrats may have been true in some past, but now we have Elizabeth Warren and it's all better. Because that seems to me to be an acknowledgement, right? I mean, I've been making this critique for a while, as some people have pointed out. Um, uh, and what this move says to me is that, you know, that, that the implication or the implicatedness of the Democratic Party in the intensifying in, enclosure movement that is neoliberalism, basically, uh, can't be denied right at this point. Uh, the most they can do is to call for changing the subject, right? So I think that's hopeful. I think there are signs of positive stirring in the labor movement. I think the willingness of y- unite here, for instance, to come out w- with the critique of the Affordable Care Act that they've come you know that they've come out with is telling, right? And there are other unions, right? I mean the you know, I mean the laborers international. Union, Um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, the Nurses Union, of course, has has been stalwart in trying to build something on on the left of the Democratic Party. Um, And there are others around. So I think that's I think that's positive. Right. I mean, and look, I mean, my beef isn't so much with with hope. It's uh, right. We all have it. Right. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been fighting. On a, you know, this side of the ledger since I was 19, right? So, and I mean, I've long ago made the determination that whatever ideals that I might have had in my youth about uh, leaving or seeing seeing a better society when I died than the one that I was that 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 I lived through for the last 40 years or so have you know i mean those illusions are gone but i'm still doing it right because um because we all have to have some kind of conviction right that that whether we're able to see it right i mean this is just something that's got to happen and it's got to be done and uh that's funny i mean uh um um i feel kind of odd um uh lapsing into a moment of this kind of of a new melancholic uh, new reflectiveness, but a number of years ago, I was approached by dissent to write an essay for their, for a series that they had then uh, called Why I'm Still on the Left or something like that. And I agreed to do it. And then I realized I couldn't because I didn't have anything to say. I mean, all I could say is, well, because capitalism is still capitalism, isn't it? I mean, so where else could I be? Right. Um, so, but, but I mean, that's just to say that, yeah, I mean, you've, you know, I'm as convinced as uh, you know, anyone that um that we can change the society to make it better and my beef actually is with the tendency um to imagine that things aren't as bad as they are that we don't need to do it do the things that we need to do that there's some magical intervention that's you know just just across the horizon that will come and take care of all of our problems from us. i mean this um you know, and this is a tendency that ra- that ranges from the apocalyptic re- revolutionism of the sectarian left at the one end to you know people who um, have the political equivalent of, of ADHD and go after whatever they see that's shiny on the side of the road over at the other end end of the progressive continuum, because that's what I think is expressive of of the real despair, right? I mean, you think about it, that's kind of what what uh, what religion is, right? I mean. Um, you can't face the depth or the height of the challenge that that confronts us. So you you retreat to um, a fantasy world. And that's what I want, want to challenge, at least insofar as I'm talking to the left or I'm trying to talk to the left.
1: And that was Adolf Reed, professor of political science at the University of Pennsylvania. And we will have links to his work up on our website at Dissent Magazine. And now for our favorite portion of the show, this week's arg. I wish I'd written that, where we bring you our picks for the pieces we wish we had written but did not.
0: So this week, or rather at the very tail end of last week, I read a piece called Inside the Barista Class by Molly Osberg at The All. Um, And it's The piece is sort of a personal essay. It's sort of a story of class and how class and gentrification operate in um, the rarefied spaces of uh, Greenpoint, Uh Brooklyn. It's a story of service work. It's a story of the emotional labor that goes into doing service work um, as a person who spent quite a bit of time in high school, in college, after college when I couldn't get a real, quote unquote, real job um, doing this kind of work and being asked all the time what do you really do? This piece really, really struck a chord with me. Um, This idea that like the barista is a sort of special class of low wage worker um, that this is sort of somehow a better job than the McDonald's job. Um, This is a really complicated subject to unpack, right? We do assume that the barista maybe has another life, has a thing that they really want to do in a way that I think a lot of people tend to not see other low-wage workers that way. Um, So this piece really kind of unpacks that and sets it in, again, the the really complicated and important-to-discuss problem of gentrification, not just in New York,
1: not just in Brooklyn, but around the country in urban areas. And my pick for the week was a Sunday review piece that actually um, got quite a bit of play because it was in the New York Times, but um, it is by Timothy Egan and is called Paul Ryan's Irish Amnesia. And um, it's kind of a whimsical piece, looking back at Irish history, sort of seizing the occasion of St. Paddy's Day as um, a chance to look back at the Irish potato famine and the mass exodus of people from Ireland, such as Paul Ryan's ancestors, who arrived on American shores desperately in search of a better life life, like so many other immigrants have before and since. What's interesting about Timothy Egan's critique is that he kind of links uh, this narrative of the Irish exodus to Paul Ryan's current political agenda and his Um, sort of oblivious way of demonizing the poor, namely uh, poor black people, by blaming them for their own problems, essentially recycling these old canards of uh, the poor being wasteful, lazy, incompetent, unable to take charge of their lives, you know, the usual. Um, But he looks back at those critiques and he unearths some interesting historical tidbits that show that um, the British elite, the British gentry, actually said the exact same thing about the Irish as they were starving to death um, due to the potato famine that was in many ways imposed by this extraordinarily unjust uh, colonial oppression that British rule had forced upon the Irish people for centuries. Um, So, uh, you know, from the 1840s to 2014, we see an enormous arc of the Irish in America sort of ascending into the ranks of the respectable white middle and upper middle class, certainly moving into the political elite the way Paul Ryan has and somehow forgetting uh, and this is where the historical amnesia comes in somehow forgetting uh, I guess where they came from in the sense that there is a continual narrative throughout American history of one immigrant group sort of assimilating into whiteness or sort of the ranks of the acceptable Americans and then turning back around pulling up the ladder from behind them and then crushing everyone who manages to be a notch or two below whether that's black people people of color, of all sorts, immigrants, uh, undocumented immigrants, particularly today. And um, it, it sort of turns on this idea of, well, you know, there is always a group that is otherized, that is always blamed for their own poverty as a way to deflect structural critiques of real institutionalized poverty and the fact that someone is always occupying that lowest rung on the ladder. Um, Instead of dismantling the ladder, it is much safer to simply blame the people at the very bottom for their own circumstances the same way the starving Irish were blamed for their own circumstances the same way. Poor black people are blamed today by Mr. Ryan and his ilk. Oh, how quickly we forget. So uh, check it out. It's in this uh, past Sunday review. And that just about does it for us. Uh, tune in next week for more labor goodness. Uh, you can reach us on Twitter at the hashtag Belabored, or you can email us at belabored at Send us
0: your stories. Send us your strike news. Send us anything else you think we should know. Send us your questions if you want them answered. And we will be back next week.
1: This life is hard, so hard I must go hate. Back, no. You've been
0: listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.